This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. There's a swing and a drive, deep right center, that ball carrying. Tie game! Tie game! Koske has done it! Oh, baby! Deep drive, way back! Ball game over! Cubs win! Cubs win! Oh, baby, Chris Bryant! Hey, hello! Welcome back in to the Play-By-Play cast, everybody. My name is Joel Gadet, and this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. As always, interact with us on social media, at PXPCast. You can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. And hey, you can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, I think it's Joel PXP is my, my new professional page. Uh, Joel PXP, Joel Play-By-Play. That'll have a whole bunch of other stuff on there, but uh, every Play-By-Play cast episode will be posted there as well, which you probably don't need to access because you're listening to the pod anyway, which means you've found it. So congratulations on that one, and ignore the last couple of seconds. If you get a second as well, please do rate and or review the podcast. It certainly helps, and we've gotten a couple over the last couple of weeks that have... uh, Stopped and thrown some stars our way. Does a couple of things. Number one, lets people know that you know people listen to the podcast. So if other people stumble across it, they see ratings, they go, oh, that's great. Maybe I'll tune in. Uh, it helps the algorithms for whatever that means. I don't know. It's just everybody says it on podcasts. So it helps people find the podcast a little bit more easily. And then, you know, selfishly, it, it makes, you know, it lets me know that people listen. <laughs> and that's good because, you know, that, that, that helps keep this thing going and uh, keep this thing alive. And and I know that there are some people out there, because I see the numbers, uh, that listen to this podcast and have not yet rated and or reviewed it. So take a couple seconds, and uh, if you get an opportunity and you enjoy the product and you enjoy the conversations that we've had, if you've gained anything of it, uh, throw some stars our way. Um, I would certainly appreciate it. I love how I did, like podcasting has turned into like a great, fun outlet but also has turned me into like a panhandler at the same time Uh, (laughs) anyway uh so interact with us on social media uh please do rate and review the podcast as well a really good response to last week's episode with jake ziven our first guest from soccer talked some beautiful game with the voice of the portland timbers last week if you've not gotten a chance to listen to jake's uh words in our conversation you can check that one out in our back archive john boog shiambi from espn was the week before him awesome response um, to his appearance on the pod, Craig Ackerman from the Astros, Toby Rowland from Oklahoma, and uh, Jim Barber from ESPN, uh, the last few before that. Our entire back catalog is, as always, free and available to you. And it's free. I, there are some podcasts that pay all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not going to do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
I don't know if you'd pay for it. And and <laughs> number two, I don't know how. So uh, all 78 previous episodes of Play by Playcast are available. If you want to scroll back through, if you're new to the podcast and you haven't had the opportunity to go look at some of the earlier episodes, uh, there's some really good conversations and some really good names that I think you'd enjoy uh, if you head back toward the beginning and, uh, and take a listen. All right, on to today's episode. And it's Len Casper from the Chicago Cubs. He's the television voice of the Chicago Cubs. And I actually had two conversations with Len for this episode. We spoke last week, and a uh, combination of Len had to go somewhere, and I was a couple minutes late calling him. Um, we only spoke for about 20 minutes, and, I, and, and we touched on some stuff, and I wanted to delve into it further. So I uh, hopped on the phone again with Len this week, and we continued our conversation uh, you might be able to tell if you can find the seam. Uh, good on you. Uh, but but there's a seam in there. I think it flows pretty well together. A lot of different topics that we cover. And, and Len is a guy that did not take the traditional route that we talk about. I, and I, I, I kind of labeled it on the pod, the quote-unquote traditional route, to get to a big-time job or a major league job. And that would be you know, you go to a minor league city and you, you call a couple seasons and then you work your way up to a bigger city and a bigger city and a bigger city and then you get a major league job. Um, he was in a major market on the talk radio side, uh, working in Milwaukee and being involved with the Milwaukee Brewers in that regard as well. And uh, of his own volition, started to get involved with the Beloit Snappers minor league team uh, up in Wisconsin and got the experience of doing baseball on a more regular basis that way, and then was able to parlay that into more with Milwaukee, which then eventually led to you know, more with Milwaukee, and then the Florida Marlins, and then um, the Chicago Cubs. I did not do justice to any of that, but Len will give you uh, the full rundown of kind of how his early career unfolded, um, and what that path was like for him. Uh, what his mental state was like as he got to be around 30 years old and thought, hey, you know, is this going to happen? Those real conversations in our own heads that a lot of us have in broadcasting. So we'll touch on kind of his rise through through, uh, broadcasting and baseball. We'll talk about what it takes to to be a Major League Baseball announcer, kind of his two cents on the best way uh, to become a Major League Baseball announcer, what Major League teams and, and decision makers look for. Uh, we'll talk about what goes into really good Major League play-by-play, working with a partner. Um, we'll talk about storytelling from his vantage point. We'll talk about the Cubs job in general and you know, being one of those jobs. And, and this is, and I say this on the pod, it, it's a day and age now where everybody's a national broadcaster because everyone anywhere can get any feed. Um, but with the Cubs, I mean, truly... Anywhere you're sitting, you can turn on your television and be subscribed to any normal cable package and get Cubs games on WGN. So uh, kind of the idea of, hey, is he a national broadcaster, a local broadcaster, a mix of the two? Um, He has a very definitive answer on that uh, that was interesting to hear. So we'll touch on that. Well, we'll touch on being the TV guy uh, and, and not getting to do as much of your normal responsibility when you get into the postseason but how that also opens some different doors to see the game and um, have a different professional vantage point when you get into the playoffs and the World Series. He's been a part of teams that have won uh, the World Series a couple of times in his career. Uh, We touch on a ton of bases. We talk about voice and his being in a band uh, throughout his his life and career. Uh, A lot of different things, a really wide-ranging conversation, and a fun one uh, that I'm glad to bring to you this week with Len Casper 
the television voice of the Chicago Cubs. I was in a you know a major league market in Milwaukee, uh, working uh, full time at the flagship uh, of the Brewers, and uh, got to know a lot of people with the ball club, and they knew of my interest uh, in doing play by play, and you know I think they understood and had an interest in me kind of being their their top fill in uh, in case someone on radio or TV uh, needed a day off. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have any experience, really. So one summer, I think it was 97-ish, uh, I called Brett Dolan, who later uh, worked for the Astros. He was working in Beloit. And at the time, it was a Brewers affiliate. And I said, hey, you know, would you be okay if if uh we're interested in me coming down and, and doing a couple of innings and sitting in with you on a few free weekends and he said absolutely that'd be great uh and you know i i i owe brett a lot to this day and give him a lot of credit because not not every broadcaster in his situation would necessarily be open to that uh they might be a little territorial but he was more than accommodating and we became very good friends as a result um, I didn't do very many games. Uh, you know, I would drive to Beloit when, you know, I had a free weekend and, you know, maybe to Appleton, I uh, went to Lansing once just because I'm from Michigan. Uh, so it's just a very small handful of games that I did. Um, but those innings allowed me to give the Brewers some tape and say, you know, it's raw. Uh, I haven't done a lot, but I've done some. And that was kind of enough to push me over the hump, uh, and, and give them, the confidence that if they threw me into the fire that I, you know, I wouldn't be terrible. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very thankful that they did that. And in 1999, I did, I don't know, 20 or 25 games and uh, ended up doing that for the next three seasons, which really positioned me well to, to apply for major league jobs prior to 2002. What was that tape? What did that tape sound like? I know I had read that you you've listened in the past and after 10 seconds, you want to burn it. Um, <laughs> so, so what did that beginning tape sound like? What did you learn from that? And kind of at what point did you figure like, all right, I'm not getting a ton of reps, but I think I've got a handle on this. Um, so that when they say, Hey, you know, we want you to fill in and do some brewer stuff um, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I know I can do this. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say my 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 recollection of my baseball work was was actually um, not bad. It, it's more of when I go back and listen to anything I did 20 years ago, I hear it through my current uh, ears, which is really unfortunate and and unfair. Um, you know, when you listen to yourself from even a year or two ago it's going to sound different it's going to sound not as advanced it's going to sound uh you know you, you haven't learned the mistakes yet right so it's really difficult for me to go back and listen but i think baseball wise i think i was a quick study just because i had been such a big fan and and, and had you know sat in my my bedroom playing tabletop baseball and doing play-by-play in my head and had grown up listening to Ernie Harwell and, and Paul Carey on the Tiger games. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, I had a good feel for that. Um, I wouldn't say I was really good at it when I started, but I, 
I, I don't think it was a fish out of water situation. Let's put it that way. And I've been broadcasting for a long time, you know, so uh, in that regard, the transition wasn't that difficult. Um, and I think they recognized that, you know, they knew that I was a somewhat polished broadcaster for my age. And even though I hadn't done a lot of baseball, I had done enough and had been around it enough uh, and shown my knowledge of it that they were willing to take a chance on me. Let's put it that way. The first Brewers game you did, though, was on TV, right? It was, yeah. Had you done TV only... before then? No. What are you, no, what are, I what are you thinking when they're saying, hey, we like to try this totally new thing? And I mean, obviously, you know, you, I'm, we all tell ourselves like, hey, I got this. But are you... Where are you at in terms of, hey, I'm going to, can I do this, basically? Well, you know, a few years prior, I had done one ESPN2 event where I was like a sideline reporter for a cherry softball game. Uh, you know, and again, I wasn't very good at it. But it's interesting, the, the producer to that event uh, on, on ESPN2 was Michael Weissman, the uh, famous longtime a network baseball producer and he was great he gave me some pointers uh we kind of stayed in touch over the years not not too much but you know if i if i would follow up with michael or, or see him somewhere he, he remembered that event um my research guy that day was steve horn who is jill buck's right hand man yeah. and uh, steve and i are still friends to this day and so that was really, really interesting and fun. Uh, but that's it. That's the only TV I'd ever done uh, prior to the first baseball game I did. And, you know, I didn't look at the camera enough in the open. I mean, all that stuff. But I, you know, I, I corrected it for game two. Um, was I nervous? Of course I was nervous. But this was my first Major League Baseball game. So I jumped at it. Um, did I know I could do it? I thought I could. Um yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard to remember exactly how I felt going in, but um, I was not going to let that opportunity pass me by. And, you know, I, I wasn't terrible, and uh, they let me do another one, so <laughs> it seemed to go okay. Uh, I had read in, a, in an interview you'd done um, online that you had felt it. I mean, how old were you at that point? When I, when I did my first uh, Brewer game, I was 28. Okay. Um, so I, I think you had, in the quote that I found is when you were 31, um, and it was when the Marlins job, I think, opened, and you kind of thought that, yeah. hey, maybe maybe my opportunity was passing me by, um, and then the, the Marlins job falls into place. Um, right. I think probably around that age, a lot of us go through a very similar thought um, in this business. Um, what was your mindset like at that point? How did you battle through it? And then uh, I know the Florida job kind of happened quickly for you um what happened to say like all right you know I, the opportunity might be passing you by and then bam there's your moment and you seize it well it, it was very specific to that off season because i had interviewed and been a finalist for two jobs and um i think it was a, a, a kind of an overreaction to to that process okay um and honestly being a finalist and being that close to getting those two jobs probably said the opposite that I that I was on the verge of getting a job, not <laughs> that I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. get one. But these people the keep wanting job. to interview me and not hire me. It's just it's terrible. Right, yeah. right. The, the the brewer job opened, and you know I was pretty well positioned. <laughs> and you know to this day, I you know talking to people there, you know they said that was an excruciating decision because they 
And they liked Darren Sutton a lot, and they liked me a lot because I was there. And, um, you know, I think they made the right call uh, at the time. And, and to this day, I think they made the right call. Um, but it was really close. And when I didn't get it, you know, I immediately talked to Darren, said congratulations. Uh, I was really happy for him. You know, I was I was really bummed I didn't get it. I mean, obviously, I didn't hold it against him. It wasn't his fault. But <laughs> I think when you don't get uh, a job or you face whatever the word would be adversity in the business, you know, how you respond to that, you know, matters a lot. And and he and I became very good friends as a result uh, of him getting the job. And uh, he said, Hey, you should apply for my job. And I said, wow. He said, yeah, totally. You know, he gave me a lot of information. He was very instrumental in getting me on the radar for the angels radio job. So, I immediately became a finalist for that job and interviewed and the whole deal. And they were hiring two uh, broadcasters. And, uh, you know, I heard later that it came down to combinations that they had considered either Terry Smith and Rory Marcus, who got the jobs, uh, or Gary Miller and me. Um, so, you know, I was that close to getting two jobs and, and came up a little short. Knowing I was going to go into 2002 uh, 2002 without really a fill-in job in Milwaukee because Darren wasn't going to miss games. Um, You know, Matt had gotten to the point, Vascursion, where he was doing a lot of national games. Um, Well, Darren coming in as the new guy, you know, wasn't going to miss games. So, you know, then I thought, oh, man, I'm I'm not going to do any baseball. (laughs) That was kind of the emotional reaction to to the idea of will I ever you know was this my best chance uh to get a job and you know in the end um not getting those two jobs uh turned out to be okay and I got the job of the three that that probably was the best one for me um you know I ended up moving which I think was a good experience going into a totally foreign market to me I'd never spent any time in Miami and ended up being a wonderful experience. And then I got the Cubs job. So if one of those other two jobs had worked out, um, I I'm, I'm, I might not have gone on from there. And I would be very happy. Um, but I wouldn't trade what happened uh, for anything in the world. Let's put it that way. What's the secret uh, to being a major league broadcaster? Um, and I mean, I just say that it, to go through the process, the number of times you've gone through it to get hired by, you know, three different franchises. What is it that that directors of broadcasting or fans or front offices uh, or stations look for that says, I don't know, I don't even know if there's a constant, maybe this is a silly question, um, but what is it that makes a major league broadcaster in a lot of decision makers' eyes? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. And if I did, I'd tell you, um, you know, and that's, that's the interesting, fascinating, uh, frustrating a part of this business is that there are no absolutes. Uh, every person who hires somebody has a different idea of what they want, what they like. Um, you know, the, I, I will break down the, the constants and the things that I believe in, in terms of applying for a job. Sure. I can give, I can give you those. doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> um, but I think the number one, uh, mistake, I guess, uh, a broadcaster makes with baseball demos is giving too many highlights and too much action. I think 
our sport is is primarily not much happening over the course of a three-hour time period, and your ability to make those moments interesting matter. Um, I'm not saying don't put highlights and home run calls, but that's not the guts of the job. Uh, that's the, uh, I'm using air quotes, the easy part of the job. You can all <laughs> scream and get excited. The challenge and and the, the hard part of this job is to do a 10-pitch at bat when there's no score in the bottom of the third inning. And that takes four minutes. <laughs> that's where you separate yourself. And that's really hard to do. Um so I encourage when people apply, you know, put your highlights on there, but, but put a couple of innings and, and don't overthink it. Don't edit it too much. Uh, when I applied for the Marlins job, I basically gave them six or seven innings of one game. I just said, here's a game. And if you want a highlight call or a home run call, uh, bottom of the fifth, you know, whatever, uh, there was a, a big double play in the whatever in the eighth. You know, so I kind of pointed them to some bigger moments, but I said, it's just, here's just a game. And I think that you exude confidence when you don't overthink it. Uh, baseball is also a sport of comfort. Uh, most of your work should sound pretty consistent. So, you know, if you're overthinking it and editing and pick, mixing and matching too much, you're kind of taking the life out of what you do and you should be comfortable with just giving them, here, here's me, you know, here's any game in the last six months. This is what I do. If you like my sound, then we're good to go. So um, that's number one. Number two, I also tell people uh, recommendations matter, but not nearly as much as you think. <laughs> and to be very, very cautious about how and when and who you use to make calls. Um, and I've learned that through trial and error myself. I've learned it through being the person asked to call. Um, there's a few rules that I keep in mind and I try to, to tell young broadcasters. Number one, um, quantity does not overtake quality. Uh, there is a point where people don't want to hear four or five calls about the same person. Um, the bottom line is you have to sell yourself uh, a very strategically placed phone call or email from someone you know really well and who knows you really well matters 10 times more than someone who has a name someone will recognize but doesn't know you that well. So the example would be, um, and Bob Costas is a friend of mine, but if, if a young broadcaster had met Bob Costas, maybe sent him his tape, talked to him for 10 minutes, and then asked him to be a, uh, a, re a reference for a job, he might agree out of being polite and call the person hiring and say, I heard from Joe Smith and you know, I like his tape and he seems like a nice guy. That is as generic a recommendation <laughs> as possible. Now it comes from Bob Costas, who's one of the you know, all-time greats, but it's way more powerful to hear from someone, the hiring person who's never heard from and doesn't know, who says, I hired Joe Smith when he was 22. He worked for me for three years, and here's exactly what I like about him and why you should hire him. Uh, a, B, C, D. 
Uh, and also here are the things that he wasn't good at and has improved. And here are a couple of things I still think he needs to get better at. I mean, someone who's going to give the full picture that is empowering that that works because then if you're interested in Joe Smith, you can ask a lot of very specific questions. And I think most people go the other direction. They want someone who has a name and someone who has a tangential relationship with you um, or an acquaintance type relationship as opposed to a fundamental relationship where you've worked with or for this person. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, that to me matters and, and, and I can give you examples of it. I don't need to, but I've, you know, I've utilized people I've been very close with who, you know, didn't know the person hiring and, and that had a huge impact. And I've also used people who have a huge name who maybe gave me a very generic recommendation because, you know, why would they know? I've done that. <laughs> you know, I've done it where I've, I've offered to give a recommendation um, and it didn't feel like I could really give a great recommendation because I didn't know the person that well. And, you know, I try to fight that a little bit and, and only give uh, recommendations or phone calls for people that I know really, really well, because, you know, I want to make sure that I can be an effective reference as opposed to just someone who has a name somebody may recognize. Can I take you down path number, or, or I guess part number one on, on that a little bit more as well? And um, sure, tell me more about the way that you call the you know the quote unquote you know boring part of the game when nothing happens. How do you make that interesting? And and what's the way that you approach it to say here's what I'm going to tackle? You know, I've got a three hour beast. You know, two hours and forty five minutes of it are going to be that lull. Um, what's the best way to do that, particularly on television? It's it's hard to explain. It really is. It's hard to write a textbook because every day is different. Um, you know, I used to be a creature of habit. I've really tried to, to not be that uh, because we're on every every single day because uh, it, it, you know, it's it's five, six hundred hours of broadcasting a summer. Uh, you've got a lot of time. Uh, I think number one is 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 obvious. Don't don't use all of your information right off the bat. Uh, you don't have to give the bio of every player who comes to bat. Uh, if you have a three or four game series, you know Andrew McCutcheon is probably going to have 16 plate appearances. You don't, you know, you don't have to spill all of your information about him in the first plate appearance or the second. You've got time. Um, you know, you want to be on top of your team. I think, you know, depending on your market. And, and kind of your gauge of, you know, what fans like and don't like about how much info you give on the other team. I think you t you can tend to overdo it on on information on the team you're playing. You, you know, it's a real tough balance sometimes. I think you just have to go with what interests you the most. Uh, you have to make decisions based on what you think is interesting. Um, you know, I don't generally sit there and think, you know, what is this fan uh, sitting at home think is interesting. I have to make decisions based on if I like it, if I think it's interesting, I'm going to make it interesting. If I don't find it interesting, I'm going to have a hard time making the viewer find it interesting. So I do think that in that regard, you've got to trust your gut. Um, that's number one. Number two is just not be in a hurry. You know, I hear young broadcasters who do a lot of other sports, their cadence is too fast for baseball. 
you've got a lot of time. Um, it's, it's having energy without rushing. And that's a skill you can only learn through experience. Um, you know, try a trial and error, you know, you do it, you listen to it and you go, Ugh, I didn't like that. I'm going to tweak it. You do it again. You go, Ooh, that sounds pretty good. I like this, but I don't like that. So I'm going to tweak it. If you do it every day, those reps become just enormous. So you can make, you can make a long at bat. You can make a long, boring inning. You can make uh, a 12 to three blowout sound interesting. Um, just by knowing what avenues to go down with your partner, you know, you get to know the person you're working with, what makes them tick, what makes them laugh. Uh, and, and I think, I think the other thing is being present. You know, you do your prep, you have all the information you've gathered before the game, and then you do everything you can to not bury your face and your brain into that information because it's already there at your disposal but there are so many things and, and roads to go down during the game by just watching the field and seeing things, especially on television. Uh, not only things in the stands, but what one player might do. Um, you know, there was a moment in a game recently where uh, Daniel Murphy had a conversation with the second base umpire, I think during a pitching change. And it was clearly about positioning and I was doing radio. It was the playoffs and we came out of the break and I was talking to Ron Coomer and I pointed out and, and Ron was an infielder. Uh, I said, Ron, I just noticed, you know, Daniel Murphy had had a lengthy chat with a, with the second base umpire. Um, and I recalled that, that Murphy had an issue with an umpire earlier this year. And we talked about shifting and how the game has changed in terms of where infielders play and how you ask an umpire, Hey, could you move two feet to your right or to your left? And that ended up being a really interesting conversation just because I was paying attention to the field during a pitching change. Right. So, so those little things seem obvious, but you'd be surprised when you get to the, you know, the ballpark and you're sitting in the booth and you're just grinding on all the information you've gathered and you're not really seeing what's hap happening in front of you. You talked about working with partners and I'm, I'm curious, just in terms of uh, your experience, what it's like working with a partner in baseball, particularly on television. Uh, I've not done a lot of partner work with baseball. Most of what I've done has been solo. Um, so if you can kind of touch on the uniqueness to doing a baseball broadcast with other people um, and how to generate that conversation and create that conversation and sustain it uh, over the course of three hours. I think, number one, just the basic difference between uh you know radio and television is is pretty pretty obvious to people who do it but sure. might not be so to to people who don't and you know the the simplest way to put it is that baseball on the radio is a play-by-play -play venture and baseball on television is more of an analyst's medium sure. uh and 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 the obvious point is that you're not describing what is happening as much as why and how and, and filling in the blanks and supplementing the pictures. So, you know, there is play by play involved, obviously. Um, but you're not required, nor should you call every pitch. Um, if you have a partner who is making a, a pretty interesting point or telling a story, you would never want to interrupt that story to say there's a foul off of first. Um, so there are, it, it's more about knowing when not to talk on television, um, especially when you have an ex-ball player or, you know, an analyst who 
you really want to bring out a, a lot of those things. Um, so for me, it's just giving space. Uh, that's the number one thing. Uh, certainly you're going to have questions and a few things that you have in mind uh, for your partner uh, throughout the, the, the broadcast. But for the most part, you're just trying to set up those moments and give blocks of space for them to jump in and to make their observations. And the other thing is just listening. Uh, you know, when you work alone, you, you, you're, you're driving the entire uh, broadcast and everything that's said comes out of your mouth. Uh, it's easy sometimes to forget when you're working with a partner that they may say something that spurs another question or another observation. Um, you've got a million things to think about when you're calling a game. So, you know, oftentimes you find yourself missing three seconds of what that person said. And now you're going, "Uh Oh, did he, did he ask me a question? Uh, <laughs> there's something I should follow up with. So you really need to, to concentrate and to pay attention. And I think listening to your partner and really keeping your focus on the field, those two things are, are paramount. Um, in addition to all the other things you have to do, it's, it, it takes a lot of focus and it takes split focus. Uh, you know, you, you, you really need to, to be locked in uh, on all of those things. And then you have a producer and a director uh, talking to you in your ear. And, and usually that happens when the other person is speaking. So th th there are a lot of things to juggle. But uh, it, through experience, you learn how to, I guess, separate those things in your brain and make sure that, that, that you're paying proper attention to all of them. How much partner prep do you do in terms of sitting down and going over, hey, this is what I've got. What do you got? Um, how do we attack this? Where do we hit it? What are we going to hit? Um, and how much of it is spontaneous uh, to kind of get that, that first run reaction, if that makes sense? Well, at this point, um, it's, it's as little prior conversation as possible. Okay. Um, the one thing that I have found, especially with really good, analysts and I've, I've been blessed to have some great ones is that their first reaction and the first conversation you have about a, an interesting topic is usually the best. And so if you have a chat before the game about uh, a certain player or something that you want to talk about during the game to then try to do that again on the air kind of takes the air out of the ball. So, you know, my thing is if I have really interesting things that I, I know Jim Deshays is, going to jump on or laugh about or have fun with that's the last thing i'm going to mention to him before the game and i want him to do the same with me uh, i think we we have a rhythm and a and a and a relationship now that you know we know what makes the other guy tick we know what makes that person interested and you know i don't want to over plan at all and i think the tendency in our business is to over plan uh, and make sure that we've got all of our bases covered. But, you know, every game is different. And uh, I like the idea of springing something on my partner uh, that he had not previously contemplated and getting his initial gut reaction. That's way better and more organic and a lot more fun. Um, and, and we have, you know, non-baseball conversations that, that occur in that manner that take on a life of their own. And that's that's to me the, the the moment where you really you have something special. This might be a hard one, and I, it can go in two directions. Um, 
Has there ever been a situation where you've done that and it's not gone right? And has there been a situation where you've done that and it turned into something really fun and memorable? Oh, absolutely. All the time. <laughs> you know, it's all trial and error. And the stuff that, quote, doesn't work, you just move on, you okay. know? Um, and, and, you know, it, it, that's the beauty of it. And that's why uh, you do it that way, in my opinion, is because you can't ever uh, map out or script a game. That's number one. Number two, uh, what allows those moments to be great is that certain ones aren't going to be, uh, it's, it's almost a given that that has to happen. You can't have everything you do turn into gold, you know, um, it's just not how life works. So, you know, you, 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 you try a few things here and there. And if during the course of a game, you throw three or four things out there and one of them turns into a really fun thing, that's great. And the things that, quote, don't work, it's not that they don't work. They just don't kind of go to maybe a place that you thought they would or or what have you. Um, you know, my 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 mantra and I think most broadcasters try this and, and for the most part, we're successful at it. But it's not always the case is that, you know, you never want to say anything unless you you feel like it's interesting. You know, I hate just filling space just to do it. But there are those moments where you have to, right? That the, the game isn't that interesting. Uh, there may not be a lot going on around baseball. There's just these dead moments in, in a game or in a season where you feel like you're a little bit at, at a loss. So those are the moments where you just kind of throw something out there that might uh, grab on. And, and, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, it's just part of live television. And it's why I really enjoy it is that not everything you try is going to work. Do you do anything... Uh... Are there different ways that you you can creatively fill some time and and tell some stories as well? And you know, I'm I'm thinking things like you know, Crosstown where Benetti does socks math, um, and and having you know different ways to just change things up over the course of a broadcast. Um, how do you approach stuff like that? Absolutely. Um, you know, again, my you know, my my philosophy's changed over the years, just as as you gain experience. Um, you know, to try to not <clears throat> over-prepare or have too many things um, kind of in, in the hopper. Um, you know, my, my thing is just I want to be able to know if I need some information that I can go find it quickly. Uh, in other words, you know, I don't have to prepare uh, a ton of things on a certain topic. I just have to know if that topic comes up, you know, can I go to a certain place and find it, whether that's, you know, records, uh, you know, ballpark information, uh, you know, if, if JD brings up a former teammate of his or a guy he might've faced, you know, I don't have to come armed with every batter pitcher matchup of his entire career, but, you know, Chili Davis is going to be our hitting coach. Uh, there may be a point where they faced each other and that's a conversation that we have. I can quickly look that up and it takes me five seconds to do it. Sure. Um, I don't really need to do a lot of prep beforehand. And my guess is uh, there's probably a story there where, you know, hey, JD, you probably faced Chili Davis. Well, how did you try to get him out? You know, I don't need to bring that up to him off the air, um, on the air. I mean, I, I don't even need to look up if they faced each other. That's just a conversation that would be sitting there waiting for us over the course of a, a summer where I just would ask, Hey, did you ever face him? You know, I don't need, I don't, I don't need to look up and find out if he did. 
you know, it would be more interesting to just kind of get his initial, yeah, you know, I think we did, or absolutely I did. And, you know, he took me deep twice or no, he, you know, by the time, uh, you know, I was doing this, he was, you know, they did face each other because they were in the national league at the same time. But my point is that I don't need to really dig into those details before asking him that question, because that's not the interesting part of it. The interesting part is that he's going to have certain memories of who knows what about facing him. And that's way more important than, you know, Chili Davis went uh, six for <laughs> 19 against you with three home runs or, you know, I'll find, I'll, I can find that out later. That's kind of the cap to the story more than anything else. You have an interesting job in that uh, anybody can watch a Cubs game anywhere in the country. Uh, and I guess that's more so the case across baseball now because, you know, extra innings packages, et cetera. But on regular television, people can just tune in and catch a Cubs game. Um, is there something different about the fact that, you know, you're a local broadcaster, but at the same time a national telecast? You know, um, when I when I took the job, I, I did wonder about that. Um, it, it, it the, the interesting thing about Cubs baseball and for all the years WGN uh, had been the superstation. Uh, I think it always was a local broadcast. And I, and I think to try to change it into a national broadcast in any way would be a huge mistake. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a, a Chicago thing that, you know, if you're from here or if you're a Cub fan, you're in for life. And, you know, other fans of other teams are still going to watch if they're interested in baseball or the Cubs or whatever. Um, I never try to tailor it to a national audience. I, I'm, I'm doing a Cubs broadcast. I think that's the way uh, Jack Brickhouse always did it. It's the way Harry Carey always did it. Uh, I think it's the way Chip Carey always did it. You know, TBS went a different route uh, before they dropped baseball. Um, Braves baseball, I should say, they kind of tried to go to a national thing while they were still doing the Braves and it was this hybrid and, uh, you know, it didn't last very long. And I, I think that you have to stay true to what, what, you know, and, um, you know, I, I, I like the fact that there are, there are Cub fans all over the world, not only, uh, around the country. Um, but I, I, you know, I never try to necessarily make it a, a less Cub centric broadcast because I know some other people may be listening or watching. I think I'd read where you'd called it one of the best jobs, if not the best job in baseball, too, to be able to be a Cubs broadcaster. Um, is that part of it, that there, there are people worldwide that are able to tune in, in in a little bit of a different fashion? Or what else, what else adds into that, um, other than that's where the paycheck's coming from? Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's part of it. I think uh, the Cubs have long been one of the most popular teams in baseball. Uh, you know, they were called the lovable losers. That's, that's no longer the moniker for obvious reasons, having won the world <laughs> series. But I think that uh, would ha- always had a pull on people that it was, a, it's kind of an interesting narrative. Um, again, Harry Carey, I think put the Cubs on the map and, and is still considered one of the most popular baseball broadcasters of all time. And then the thing we can never forget is Wrigley field. I think the pull of that ballpark, uh, is is really powerful, and you have you do have a lot of people who come to Wrigley Field who aren't Cub fans. They are just baseball fans. They want to uh, come to one of the great landmarks uh, in the city of Chicago, and uh, you know that part of it is is enormous, and it's something that a lot of other franchises don't possess. So you add kind of all of that up, and uh, and the city of Chicago is you know I think unparalleled in terms of being a, a great sports town. Uh, I had 
uh, a longtime uh, national guy come up to me, someone I have amazing respect for. And he said, you have my dream job. And I, I was floored by that. And I said, why? He said, because the Cubs job, that's the job everybody wants. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to, to be able to do it. And I think uh, a lot of broadcasters look at this job as, uh, as, as one of the best, if not the best in the sport. Uh, I want to ask you about the World Series, um, and, and you brought it up. And I think you were with the Marlins when they won as well, correct? I was, yes. What's it like when you do the TV for an entire season? And I know you, you know, you, you slide over to the radio um, for a little bit during the playoffs, but to to have one role and then you get to the games that that really count, uh, and you go into a different role and have a little bit of a different perspective. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I I'm very, very grateful uh, to the Cubs and and to the Score uh, and and you know, formerly CBS Radio, now Intercom Radio, but uh, they have welcomed me in with open arms. And you know, I've I've dabbled in radio uh, the last several years. And you know, t- basically, I, I I told them I'm invested. Uh, I really want to be involved in any way I can. I don't want to step on any toes, but if I can be you know, of assistance to, to Pat and Ron uh, in the in the postseason, um, almost as a as a quasi producer. Um, you know, it's it just fun for me to be in the booth and to be a part of it because, as you said, local TV goes away once once you get uh, into October, and these are the games everybody wants to be around and to call. Um, I've, I've been able to call uh, an inning of play by play. I do pro, well, pregame interviews. And then when the Cubs, you know, would win in the playoffs, I'm in the dugout or on the field doing a live interview right after the game. And that perspective is so different from what I'm used to. It's almost better that uh, way, isn't it? Yeah, it, <laughs> it really is fun. And, um, you know, I end up becoming, because I'm not calling the entire game, I, I, I get way more nervous about, about the game itself because I'm kind of, you know, spending my time kind of pacing around the booth. Um so that's been a lot of fun, and I, I really enjoy that. And you know, it, it would be hard not being involved in any way uh, during the, the biggest month of any baseball season, which is the postseason. So, yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to to have been a small part of it, and uh, hopefully, I'll have a lot more opportunities down the road. And you know, the Cubs are good, and hopefully, we'll be back many more times. You know, most broadcasters don't get that perspective, uh, and and many times I've thought about like, gosh, I wish I could just have one game where I could sit in the dugout. Um, what did you learn uh, that maybe helps you do your job better, being able to, to see a game in that perspective? Well, the game's a lot faster. Yeah, the game's a lot faster uh, down on the field. You know, our perspective uh, up in the booth, we can see everything and, and how it develops. Uh, you don't have that perspective when you're down on the field. When a ball is hit, you're not quite sure how far it's going to go. Um, you know, it's a lot more difficult for a, for a base coach uh, to figure out whether to send a runner or not when you're down at field level. I think you gain a really good understanding of how difficult a lot of those decisions are. Uh, And just to see the action on the pitches, you know, from the side view of the dugout Mm -hmm. is, is really, really interesting. Um, And just how the players are able to kind of slow down. What is a really, really fast game? Um, Who hugged you first when they won? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's a good question. <laughs> I, I pretty much got hugs from everybody. The first guy I interviewed was Justin Grimm, so I'm sure at the end of the interview there was a there was a hug. Dexter Fowler, I think, was in the mix. Uh, I'm sure David Ross, uh, but yeah, pretty much the entire team at, at one point. And then uh, Pat and Ron, once I saw them in the clubhouse. Uh, um, 
I know you've talked about Ernie Hartwell a couple times while we've been talking, um, and I know he was one of your big inspirations uh, when you, you wanted to get into this. Uh, what is it about him that attracted you? Um, and I know he was, he was kind of laid back and, and had that approach and had that style. And um, I don't know if it was that or, or what turned you on to Ernie Harwell and, and, and made you want to follow kind of in, in his footsteps, for lack of a better way of putting it. Well, I think there are two parts. Number one, you know, you grow up in a certain area and you have your team and the broadcasters for that team obviously take on kind of a larger than life uh, thing for you. Um, but I was very lucky in that I had one of the best of all time to listen to every day in, in Ernie Harwell and his great partner, Paul Carey. Uh, Ernie uh, was from Georgia, uh, always had a little bit of a, a Southern drawl, but you know, calling games in the upper Midwest, you know, we always felt like he was one of ours. That, that, that's pretty powerful. Um, he didn't sound like he was from Michigan, but he was, he was, he was a Michigander. He was the voice of the Tigers. Um, I, I, I always loved that <clears throat> no matter what the score was, he always had the same tone. He was always happy to be at the ballpark and, uh, you know, very even keeled. And I feel like that matched my personality. Um, there just was a cadence he had, a comfort level. Uh, you know, if you listen to Ernie for, you know, a couple of innings, I think without having heard him before, you would say that's a very comfortable listen. Uh, there was nothing that tried to make it about himself. There was nothing over the top about it. Everything was simple to the point and uh, just right in the sweet spot of what I would want a baseball broadcast to sound like. Uh, and, and I was very fortunate to get to know Ernie uh, later in his life and early in my career. And uh, we became friends. And uh, um, that's one thing about my, my career and my life that I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for is that I got to not only meet one of my heroes, but uh, to become a good friend. And uh, when I got the Marlins job, I got a handwritten note from Ernie. When I got the Cubs job, I got a, a personal phone call from him. Uh, and those are the moments that you really cherish. And, and, you know, it gives me goosebumps just to think about the fact that he took the time out of his day to, to think about uh, someone who grew up listening to him and who had admired him. And, and to return that favor uh, meant a lot to me. How much better did you, I, I don't know if, even, if this is even the way to put it, but I mean, how much better do you become as a broadcaster once you're able to, to meet the guy that you idolized and, and kind of learn from him in the flesh, even if he doesn't realize he's doing it, um, what rubs off on you? I think what rubs off the most is just to be yourself. And I think we naturally, when we all start, uh, we, we have an idea of what uh, a broadcast should sound like. And that usually comes from listening to someone like Ernie or yeah. Ben uh, or, or Jack Buck or Harry Carey. And you tend to maybe mimic them in a, in a certain way. And, you know, I don't think young broadcasters should run away from that at all. Uh, we all have to start somewhere. Uh, the, 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 the broadcasters who are immediately find their own voice are usually the ones who just skyrocket to the top. Uh, Joe Davis would be an example. Sure. Uh, I, I got tapes from Joe when he was still in college. And, you know, I could tell right off the bat that he was he was a natural. and He, he was going to be a pretty quick study. But for the most of us, it's. You know, when you start, you, you tend to copy the style of someone you respect. Um, so I think, you know, when you meet someone like Ernie, you get to know him. You find out that off the air, they're exactly like they are on the air. 
And it's a good lesson to, to all of us that, you know, you have to be your own person. You have to be your own broadcaster. And over the course of time, I think being genuine and being yourself is, is the best way to go. And there's a moment in every broadcaster's career just through sheer experience where your own voice tends to come out. And that's when I think you're really able to lock in and kind of take your, your craft to another level. I want to ask you a random question, uh, if, if I may here. Um, and I guess part of it is part of it is, is kind of who you are and finding, I guess, kind of, kind of finding literally your own voice. Uh, you sing in a rock band, correct? Uh, I did. Uh, I did about 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, now I basically play bass uh, for a couple of charity events. But yes, I did at one point sing in a rock band. I, I was the singer by default. I will. I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that is known that it uh, wasn't that I really wanted to be the singer. It just was more or less that nobody else raised their hand. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, can you tell me about the development of your voice, though, and and that as an instrument? Uh, quite literally, I mean, quite literally as an instrument, uh, but also in, in regards to what you do and kind of how you were able to craft uh, your sound and, and kind of find your voice in terms of broadcasting as well. And I don't know if those two things go hand in hand, uh, but I just, it kind of hit a light bulb when I saw it. Well, um, you know, my, my singing voice is not very, very good. And I never really <laughs> spent a lot of time, you know, figuring it out. I, I, I would say my, in terms of my broadcasting, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of broadcasters, um, you know, spend a lot of time uh, you know, making sure that they're hydrated, making sure that, you know, they don't strain too much. Um, you know, I'm cognizant of all those things, but, you know, I have found that, that my personality is such that the less I think about it, usually the better off I am. And, and I really try not to overthink those things. Uh, if I start to feel my, my voice get a little scratchy, you know, I'll double up on the emergency and, uh, maybe the maybe the coldies, cough drops, uh, or what have you. But you know, I I, I really try to not um, necessarily do anything specific uh, with my voice. I, I just want to kind of live my life and try to do everything I do normally and uh, adjust as I have to. Um, you know, I've had some some throat issues in the past in terms of uh, strep and and some tonsillitis, uh, and there was a point where it looked like I might have to get my tonsils out, which I really, really didn't want to have to do because I didn't want to mess with anything around my voice or my throat. Um, fortunately, that that is stabilized. Um, but I have friends who've had, who've had throat surgeries. Obviously, Joe Buck had one uh, a few years ago. I think Tom Brenneman did recently. Uh, Dave O'Brien uh, with the Red Sox told me that he uh, had his tonsils or out or was going to at some point. So, you know, it does happen, and it's scary when you hear about it. Um, but I've been very fortunate, knock on wood, to this point where uh, my voice is held up. Have you ever done it? I mean, have you? Is, are you just you, or have you done a, like? Have you taken voice lessons or, or tried to do different? I have techniques, not. Or is it just you are who you are? I am who I am. Yeah, I have not. You know, I, I I do have friends in the business who have taken voice lessons and worked with you know coaches on diction and and projecting and all those things, but. Uh, for the most part, no, it's just, uh, I am who I am and what you hear and what you see is what you get. I have one question I got, uh, when I put out that I was having you on the podcast, uh, I asked if there were any questions for you. Um, and uh, I did get one that came in that I thought was interesting. Um, and I don't know, I mean, baseball is a sport where, 
we keep our own statistics for the most part in, in terms of keeping your own book. Um, but it was if you have a – do you have any kind of talent stats help in the booth or, or are, there, are there people on the truck that keep track of things that are beyond what you would just keep in your book? Um, I don't know if it's charting pitch selection or uh, fly ball, ground ball, or all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what kind of production help comes along um, with a Major League Baseball broadcast? Well, a lot of broadcasts, they have someone who, who is kind of their stats person in the booth. Um, we don't uh, with the Cubs. We never have, um, you know, and, and we do have an associate producer in the truck who is uh, responsible for graphics. And that person usually uh, is tied in with uh, Elias or Stats Inc. Um, and, and are able to get certain stats that we request or they may find interesting things that they will either pop up on the screen or tell me uh, during an inning or during a break. Um, you know, hey, uh, you know, that's uh, the 19th first pitch strike out of the first 20 batters, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. So, yeah, we, we do we do have a lot of assistance. And I think part of it, too, is just, you know, building a rapport with with the people you work with. They also know the types of stats and the types of things that we find interesting. So they'll cater a lot of it to, you know, Leonard J.D. will will find this really cool. So I'm going to I'm going to research this a little bit. Um you know, one kind of crowning uh, achievement in terms of uh, that teamwork uh, earlier in September, I had just been looking at, at, at Chris Bryant's uh, baseball reference page and I, I noticed his games played and I, I, just a bell went off in my head. I thought, you know, I wonder how many players in baseball history have played in 150 games in each of their first three major league seasons. And so I had our stats person ask Stats Inc. And we found out that once he hit game 150, which I think was two or three games before the end of the season, he was the first Chicago Cub ever oh, wow. to play in 150 games in his first three seasons and only the 11th, I think, major league player all time. Now, that's a stat that we wouldn't have ever found and probably nobody would have even considered <laughs> it just was, it just popped into my head that it was a fun question. Um, and I actually told Chris uh, before game 150, I said, I have a really cool stat, but I can't tell you for a couple of days. And we kind of had fun with it. And when I told him the stat, he, he lit up, he, he, he thought that was a really neat uh, thing. And, you know, I talked to his dad about it a little bit later. And those are fun moments when you can give the player that the stat and say, Hey, by the way, you're the first cup to do this. So th th those are, those are the really fun moments for me, but for the most part, you know, JD and I kind of have our own system in terms of what interests us. And, uh, you know, we, I, I hate to overdo the stats and the graphics. Um, you don't want to bludgeon people too much. So it's, it's a little bit of a less is more philosophy, uh, I think they're they're good tools to use, but you never want to get in the way of just enjoying a baseball game. Len, last thing for me, um, and I this is more on the storyline side of things. Uh, what's working with Joe Madden been like, and uh, how has he changed? Maybe how you've seen baseball, or what have you been able to learn from him uh, on a day to day basis? He's the best manager I've been around in terms of knowing what we need to do. Uh, he'll give you any information you you ask for. He likes second guessing. He likes to explain why he does what he does. Interesting. Uh, we can talk to him every single day. Um, and I do as, as often as I can. And, uh, you know, he gives it to us straight. Um, not all the information is necessarily stuff we can use on the air. 
but it gives us a good perspective on why things occur. And so if something comes up later in a ball game, whether it's, you know, the closer not being available that day or whatever, uh, we're armed with that information should the need arise to use it. So he, he, he totally respects what we do and is more than happy to explain any sort of moves or strategy uh, it's, you know, I have learned so much baseball. And the other thing from, from, from my perspective that's great is Joe's open to, to hearing new ideas and the conversations and crazy questions. I have a lot of weird strategic questions. Would you ever consider this? And he'll give me a straight answer. Sometimes it's, yeah, that's a really good point. Sometimes it's, nope, I never would, and here's why. And for, for someone like me who likes to learn something about the game every day, it's just he's a goldmine of information. You've never told him something that you thought was interesting and then had it pop up in a game and been like, wow, I told him that, have you? <laughs> Not necessarily, but we <laughs> okay. did have a conversation about um, sack fly attempts with one out um, that I had read a stat that uh, Pete Palmer had, had mentioned that teams don't try to score often enough uh, on one out sack fly attempts that um, the, set, the, the success rate is actually too high. Uh, and, and the theory is even if you get thrown out on a sack fly attempt with one out to end an inning, as long as the percentage of that runner scoring is higher than the idea of the next batter with two outs, getting that runner in for third, you should try it. And, um, you know, Joe and I had a, had a really interesting conversation about that and, you know, whether that led him to telling his third base coach to be more aggressive or not, I don't know, but it's a conversation we've had and it's one that not every manager would necessarily be open to having if it's not an idea he came up with. Uh, so that I appreciate about Joe that I can just say, Hey, this was interesting. You know, I found this here, take a look at it. And he's like, yeah, that is interesting. Thank you. Hey, that's Len Casper joining us here on Play by Playcast. Hey, if you get an opportunity, let Len know that you listened and that you uh, caught some parts of this episode, took something from this episode. Um, you know, it's one thing when I have these folks on the podcast and can say to them, hey, thanks, I appreciate it, um, and we appreciate it. Uh, but it's a totally different thing when Len hears that you heard him on the podcast and gained something from it you know how do we all feel when somebody says like hey like that thing you told me it was really helpful uh, so uh if you can hit uh, len up on twitter he is at len casper um just let him know if you enjoyed the podcast today hey this was really awesome i really liked this i really liked that um i thought your vantage point of seeing the world series from the dugout and being on the field in the immediate aftermath i thought that was really cool i thought your stories of you know, searching for information and trying to tell stories and trying to find uh, new and unique stories on guys and, you know, stuff about Chris Bryant and his place in Chicago Cubs history. I thought that was cool. Whatever piqued your interest, tips on uh, how to make it to being a major league broadcaster, um, whatever it was that you took away from this, um, give Len a shout and, uh, and let him know again, at Len Casper on Twitter. Uh, really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So I'm stoked for it here as we close out 2017, our first full year of play-by-play cast. I mean, we've, we've been on for more than a year. Like, I can do the math there. We've, we're almost at 80 episodes. Um, but the first year, January 1 through December 30 days have September. How many? 31. 31 in December. From January 1 to December 31, our first full year of uh, PXP cast 
being around. We'll close it out with Mike Breen next week, the television voice of the New York Knicks and, you know, of, of the NBA Finals. Uh, we'll, it's a fun one. Uh, tape that one this week with Mike Breen. So we'll uh, drop that one for you on Friday of next week. Brian Estridge is the voice of the TCU Horn Frogs. He will be with us before year's end. Rich Burke as well from Pac-12 Networks will carry us through um, the end of 2017 and into 2018. As always, thanks to you for hitting subscribe and download. Appreciate your listenership. And we're off for a week. We'll talk to you next week right back here on PXPCast. See ya. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.